0: And for the rest of us, we are finishing up, maybe you're thankful for this, we are finishing up our sermon series in the Song of Songs, so turn with me to chapter 8. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, someone would love to bring you a Bible. I don't know if it was in preparation for this or uh, if I'm just that weird Personality, But throughout the spring, I've been listening to a lot of love songs. And um, one song that I listened to a few times, which is sort of the, it's sort of an anti-love song, but if you Google it, it makes one of the top love songs, is a song recorded by Tina Turner called, What's Love Got to Do With It? I won't sing it, I promise you. But Tina Turner asks this question in her sort of chorus. What's love got to do with it? And it was a chart-topping success. Um, in many ways, the, 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 the song is an ode to separating sex from love. And in that sense, it is a departure from the normal love song, and it was sort of an embrace of the free love culture of the 1970s. What's Love got to do with it, and the sort of rhetorical answer is nothing, not much. Uh, This week, I read that Tina Turner, when she first heard that song, she didn't want to sing it, she didn't want to record it because of its message, but it was so catchy, and her manager was so persistent that she did. And when she, when it kind of was released, she became the oldest, uh, uh, number one, oldest woman to uh, be number one on the Billboard Top 100. She got rich on that song. What's love got to do with it? It's a question that our culture is constantly asking, I think. And in many ways I think they've already answered it. Love's got not much to do with it. Well, today we're going to sort of ask that question, but we're going to answer it in I think a much more beautiful, robust and biblical way or answer. I think there is a better story, a better answer to that question than the answer that Tina Turner has in her song. I hope to convince you that actually, far from having nothing to do with love, actually love's got a lot to do with it. So this spring, we have been looking at and studying a book in the Bible, and it's dedicated to love. And we've sort of been touching love, we've kind of been looking at love from different kind of facets, but today we finally really take a good look about love. Like, what is love? Like, this chapter, the end of the book, we get the closest thing to a definition of what is love. What does love have to do with it? This is a song, Song of Songs, that is the greatest song dedicated to the greatness of love. And though we've been kind of skating around love, now, finally, we're going to look and gaze and meditate and think and process love. What's love got to do with it? Chapter 8 says everything. So turn with me to chapter 8. We're going to start in chapter 5. We ended in chapter 4. So we're going to start in chapter 5 and finish today. Who is that coming from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awaken you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither Can floods drown it? If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. I was a wall. My breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He led out the vineyards to his keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruits a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousands and the keepers of the fruits two hundred. O you who dwell in the gardens, with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. So in the last chapter, all the characters come out, right? Maybe you've seen the finale of Les Mis, and all the characters come out for that final last song, and sort of all of the the themes and the characters come as they sing. That's what we have here. We have sort of a finale where the major themes in the last seven chapters and the major characters all come on The scene. It is the finale. And it's really interesting that when you think about it, as this song has been developing and as these scenes have kind of been repeated, we've seen for the most part kind of the 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 bullseye or the, the major theme is about passion and romance. But chapter eight, passion and romance actually take a back seat to Love. So once again, the the couple enters in verse 5 in this dramatic scene out of the wilderness, and we saw that they arrived like that in chapter 3. Only now they're together, and she's leaning on him in protection and security and comfort. We we then read about this apple tree, this this imagery that we saw in chapter 2, which was a sign of his love for her a sign of their budding love. It was a sign of his protection of her. But then, as quickly as this sort of metaphor and this imagery, this apple tree, shows up in verse 5, we all of a sudden have this idea of his mother and labor, and we're like, what's going on here? Well, really, when you think about it, this is an imagery not just of an apple tree in the sense of his protection But here we see the first hint, and it's been hinted at before, but here we have the first hint at not just their romance and their love, but actually the product of their romance and love in children, or the hope of children. You could think of this as a description metaphorically of their family tree, right? As the old kind of rhyme goes, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby in the baby carriage, something like that, right? That's what we have here. They come, they enter the scene, and all of a sudden there's this hope of this generational blessing that will come because of the fruit of their love. And then, verse 6, we have what amounts to the closest thing we get to a definition of love. And so what I want to do is we're going to look at love and we're going to divide up the text kind of in three parts. And the first is verses 5 and to verse 7 and we're really going to see the charter of love. That's the best way I can capture this. Like what is the charter of love? Or maybe the essence of love? Because that's what we're going to see in verses really most particularly in verses 6 and 7. So in verse 6 we have what amounts to be a definition of love and we get three images that relate to love. Do you see them? On verse 6 a seal death, and then fire and water. So we'll just kind of take these in that order. We have this language of a seal. And in the ancient Near East, people wore signet rings. And it told you who you were, right? right? There was no like birth certificate, so they kind of function as birth certificates. So if you're going to sign something, you would use your signet ring. And she's basically saying, I want, that, I want him to take his signet ring and brand that signet ring on my heart and on my arm. She wants to be so identified with him that it's, that's, it is as if outwardly and inwardly she wants to take his identity. Now that seems weird and we're like, that's weird and we know it's poetry but that's, that's just kind of over the top but we still do this. We still do this, right? When you get married, often, even in our culture, what does a woman do? She takes... The husband's last name. What is she doing? She's saying, I am yoking my identity to his identity. I am taking his identity on as my own identity. That that, that whole idea of taking someone else's name actually isn't just pragmatic. It has a deep theological truth that it's pointing to. Or even a ring functions like that, right? An engagement ring or a wedding ring functions like that in which we say, oh, like our ring symbolized that I I am hers and she is mine. Um, I I, I hate wedding rings just practically. I know you've all seen me. I fidget with it. I just, I, I hate them. And so I had a ring and I lost it, okay? My original wedding ring, I lost it. I took it off when I was playing baseball and it just got raptured or something. And so for like six months, it was glorious. I didn't wear a wedding ring and I just felt, it was lovely. And then... People kept calling me my wife's partner, and my wife was like, you will wear a wedding ring from now on. (laughs) And so I have, but the point is that she wanted to communicate, oh, yeah, you know, we're we're married, and that's what a wedding ring does. That's the imagery we have going on in verse 6. She wants to take on his identity, and she uses this language of a seal to make that point. And then second, love is compared to death, which is morbid, but just think about it. She says love is, as it were, as strong as death. Death is consistent. All humanity tastes death. Death is resolute. It has a single-mindedness to it. It's unshakable. It doesn't stop. And their love is like that. Feelings, they come and go. Their love is as unshakable as death, as single-mindedness as single-minded as, we could say, the grim reaper. That's the whole idea here. Love is single-minded, devoted, consistent. And then the the third we see is this whole idea of fire. Love is fire, a, a fire that cannot be quenched. Even water cannot overtake it. Some of you, I'm guessing, have... Watch the news this past week and you've heard about the fires in Canada that are just enormous and it doesn't matter how much water they're dumping on it, they cannot stop those fire. That's what we're talking about here. Fire that cannot be quenched with water. It's all consuming and their love is a bit like that, which is why then verse seven, we read that if you took all the wealthiest people in the planet, you took all of their money, You couldn't buy love because love is not for sale. So money can buy an experience. Money can buy pleasure. Money can buy many things, but one thing money cannot buy is love because you cannot coerce love. It is freely given. Money comes and goes. Money is a commodity in that sense. But love, love, love's not a commodity that you can buy and sell. I think in many ways, the the imagery here of fire and the seal and water and death, it's all getting at the exact same thing. There's a permanence to their love. Money is temporary, but their love is permanent, it's committed, it's serious do you remember that great ode in the New Testament to love that Paul writes? And it's not really an ode to love. It's actually a a cutting critique of their lack of love. The Corinthian church lacked love. And so he's saying, this is what love is to which you don't have. But do you remember how he defines love? He says, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, that love is patient and kind. It's not envious. It's not boastful, not arrogant, not rude, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love is like that, Paul ends. And then he just kind of Builds into this crescendo. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Why? Because love never ends. You ever notice that? That's how he ends this whole section. Love never ends. Love has a permanence to it. Paul then goes on to write those great three virtues, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Why is love greater than faith and hope? I take it because it has an enduring factor that faith and hope do not have. Love has a permanence to it. Love has a commitment to it. That's what is first and kind of that's the, 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 the whole idea of this definition of love that our author wants us to see. More than just a feeling, more than emotions, more than passion. Love has commitment at its heart. It has a permanence to it. It's, love is like a velvet brick. It's tough. It weathers storms. And their love is like that. It is an all-consuming fire. Love's charter is time-tested commitment. Isn't that interesting that that's how it loves? In this great ode to, to romance and passion, he slows down the author and tells us that at the end of the day, this passionate relationship should be set on a foundation of commitment love's charter is commitment but then as we keep going verse eight we we look at love's product maybe the product of love and the product of love is nothing short of peace so once again the brothers show up and there's some question about it the brothers are positive or negative i kind of read them as negative um Often brothers can be negative to their sisters. And there's also a question on if if this is a flashback. So the brothers show up and they're talking about this sister and it's like, okay, so is this a flashback to their conversations with this woman? I'd read it as that, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't change the interpretation at all. But they show up and they talk about their sister who hasn't physically matured yet and they ask basically this rhetorical question, but their question is simply, How can they protect her? Particularly, how can they protect their sister's purity? And it's a rhetorical question, so they ask it, and then verse 9, they answer it. They say, well, if she's a wall, they're going to build her up in silver. If she is a door, they're going to enclose her with boards of cedar. That's weird, okay? That's kind of weird language. But the point in all of this is that they are dedicated to keeping her pure, whether she likes it or not. They're committed to her purity. But as they sort of trail off, the woman then speaks, right? Verse 10. Because she wants everyone to know that she was a wall. Verse 10. She kept herself pure. And in so doing, what did she bring to her relationship? Verse 10. Peace. She brought peace to her relationship, to her love, to her community. As someone wrote that I read this week, her holiness brought her love and her community much happiness. Holiness produces happiness. Holiness produces purity. The product of her virtue of, you know, classically chastity, which is a, we don't use that word a lot, but her chastity and that virtue brought peace. Uh, in, in preparation for this series, I was reading a lot of books, and one book I read uh, was a book called The Genesis of Gender by Abigail Favali. And uh, she wrote something very, very simple yet profound. This is what she wrote Quote, If we think marriage is easy and self satisfying, and the celibate life is difficult and self denying, we've understood neither, at least not in the Christian sense. The cross is not imposed on the celibate or the single, but instead offered to all as a means to holiness. We are all asked to curb our sexual desires out of deference for human life and its genesis in human sexuality. I think she's exactly right. We so often think of purity only in the single context, but all humanity, every man and woman, whether married or single, is called to be in that sense, pure, whether in the context of marriage or in the context of your singleness. And I know that in some ways, as we've talked about purity and abstinence, there's been weird teaching about this. And I've talked to actually many of you, and uh, I wasn't raised in purity culture because I grew up Catholic, and they had their own kind of purity culture that's different than evangelical purity culture. But even... Churches who have tried their best to have conversations about purity and, and what does that look like and what does the Bible teach about it, even if you were raised in cultures like that, there has been some, well, we could call traumatic baggage. And yet, one thing we do know here, and I think Favali summarizes this section so well, is that at bare minimum, theologically and biblically, purity in whatever context you're at, whatever stage of life you're at, purity brings peace. It brings peace of mind, does it not? Peace of conscience. It brings peace to your community, peace to your friendships. Knowing that your husband is keeping himself pure on the internet brings peace to the relationship, peace to the community, peace to the church. Purity breeds and produces peace. At the same time, we know that all of us not only have sort of baggage, all of us have failed. Like that, there is no sexually pure person in this church at this moment. All of us have failed. And that is why the gospel is so beautiful. Because the gospel is the hope to the sexually broken, which is all of us. And the hope of the gospel comes to us and says that you can be made clean. Because Jesus lived and died and was resurrected, if you put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, you are, as it were, pure. And you can live a pure life in Christ as a result. That is the hope of the gospel. If you don't know that gospel, if you don't know that hope, if you don't know the, the, the power of your cleared conscience in Christ, come talk to me after the service. Talk to someone next to you. That is the hope of the gospel put out for all of us, that in Christ we can be made pure. But as lofty as sort of the Christian virtue of chastity is, or purity is, not everyone's committed to it. Look at Solomon, verse 11. Solomon shows up, twice in this section as a foil and we have this language of Solomon and his vineyard and we've seen time and time again metaphorically speaking the vineyard stands for this woman and so the vineyard here is talking about Solomon's many women and he had a lot of them and so it's clear that the great vast number of vineyards stand for the great great vast number of women that he had. He had so many that he had to pay people to take care of these vineyards. That's what verse 11 and 12 are talking about. Solomon had a lot of money, and he had a lot of wives, and he had to pay a lot of people to keep up with all of it. But there's a contrast, verse 12. That Solomon, in all of his unfortunate glory, verse 12, this woman, her vineyard is her own. And so what she's basically saying is that Solomon might have the thousands, he might have money, he might have wealth, he might have many, many lovers, but Solomon, in all of his wisdom, knows nothing of the sort of love that this woman and this man have. Their love shames even the great king, Solomon. Now what makes their love better than Solomon's? Well, it's not just that it's pure. Third, the third movement, starting in verse 13 and 14, is that there is a horizon to love we see. And the horizon of love is God. Let me read just the ending. And just notice how, in one sense, how unspectacular the ending of this song is. Verse 13, O you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. It ends unresolved. It ends sort of with firecrackers, but they're like misfired firecrackers. Hopefully that doesn't happen to you this week. You'd think the finale would be this huge buildup of love and then you just see the happy end. But no, it just, it kind of leaves and you have all these questions like, oh, what's going on here? And, and it's as if he's still lost her and he's still pursuing her and she's still pursuing him and she's still lost him and there's this tension and there's this play and you're like, what in the world? Why would you end this way? All we know is that at the end of this song, what we see is that he still loves her, she still loves him. He's still pursuing her, she's still pursuing him. She still longs for him, he still longs for her. There's something beautiful, I think, going on in the unresolvedness to this song. Um, I have a lot of soapboxes, you know some of them. One of my soapboxes is, uh, and this is the only image, imid- kind of way I could describe this, so I'm gonna, I might offend a few of you, um, and I apologize if I do, but one of my soapboxes is, I hate cheesy vows at weddings. And I've seen a lot of them. Let, let me tell you some of them, all right? Um, I, I heard once, this was years ago, like 15 years ago, someone vowed that when their spouse ha- put on their grumpy pants, that they would help them put on their party pants. That was their vow. I remember being like oh gosh oh it gets worse I, uh, you are a prism that takes the light of life and turns it into a rainbow you are a lotion that moisturizes my heart I'm not making these up without you my soul has eczema now I don't even know what those mean literally but the The notion that those are vows I think just trivializes love. Love is far greater than that and that's what this chapter is trying to encompass. That love has commitment for a brain, covenantal devotion as a heart and perseverance as its soul. Love leads to purity. Love is like I said before, it's like a velvet brick. It's tender yet solid. Now, We've seen this over and over again. Romance and passion, really good. But it's so fitting that at the end of this song that's dedicated to love, it's not that. It's not romance. It's not passion. Those sizzle, right? There is a thing called the midlife crisis. There is a honeymoon phase in every relationship. There is the seven-year itch. There's something better than moisturizer for the soul, whatever that is. We need romance, we need love, we've seen that time and time again, but, but we end with this calling, this display, this description of love that is so much better and more textured than mere feelings, mere passion, mere romance. Because that's the kind of love that many wanders cannot quench. Neither can floods drown Even the ending, this, you see, notice the playful back and forth in verse 13 and 14. I think it gets to this idea, this longing. She finally gets the last word, tells him to make haste, and then we end. He's still longing for her. She's still looking for him. They still want each other. They still love each other. The song trails off, as it were, directing us off into something else a greater love, a different horizon. The song ends, I think, unresolved, trailing off because it's meant to set us on a different horizon. Um, in 1968, there's a man named Robertson, or Robert McQuilkin who was the president of Columbia Bible College. And uh, he, he was the president there for 22 years, faithfully, beloved president. But about a decade into his president, um, his wife, Mariel, began forgetting things. And then they learned, as they did a bunch of tests, that she had early onset Alzheimer's. This was in her late 40s. She became distressed whenever he would leave, and she would sometimes just walk the mile and a half to his office, just searching for him day in and day out. And then in 1990, he realized that he had to step down as president in order to take care of her full-time, even though he was sort of in the prime of his presidency. He was in his early 60s. He took care of her for uh, nearly 15 years before she passed away, and he wrote a book, and the book is called A Promise Kept. And in that book, he details his love for his wife And it's anything but cliche like those vows. It's a a love song. But he dedicates that love song and he actually frames the chapters through his vows. So chapter 1 is entitled, In Sickness and in Health. Chapter 2 is entitled, To Love and to Cherish. Chapter 3, For Better, For Worse. Chapter 4, For This Day Forward. Chapter 5, For Richer, For Poor." Chapter 6, Till Death Do Us Part. It's a great book but it's heart-wrenching. But as you read it, you realize there's something glorious about that love. It's not cheap love. It's not passionate love. Merely like you find it in Netflix. It has permanence, commitment, loyalty. It's other-centered. And I think that's what we want. That's what we long for. We long for love That promises and love that keeps those promises. And I think this psalm ends, or this song ends in such a way because it's meant to to kind of end in a note of discord that pushes us to long for God's greater love. Because only in chapter 8, did you notice, this entire book, God does not show up, but God finally shows up in chapter 8. Look there at verse 6. Love flashes or flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. There's the Lord. Fire and water. I think the allusion here is actually to to the two great kind kind of Old Testament scenes of God in the book of Exodus. God appearing to Moses in the burning bush. And then God leading God's people out of Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea. So God declares his love when he says, this is who I am, and this is who you are, and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to constitute you as a people, and I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people, and we're going to lead you out of bondage in Egypt. God loves like he did in the burning bush. Or God loves as he says, yep, it's time, let's go, and he he leads God's people out, and they go through the water, and the waters cannot touch them. God's love is a little bit like that. God's love reaches to the mountains and can find the depths of the sea. It's that expansive. Just look at how love is described. It's described as jealous. God's love is jealous. He wants us to have no other lovers but him. It's covenantal. God's love for us is covenantal. He binds himself to his people. God's love is eternal. Even death cannot quench God's love. Often, when we think about love, when we define love, we define it in terms of feelings. And even when we think about our relationship with God, we sometimes say things like, I don't feel God's love. But God's love is greater than a feeling, it's greater than an experience. God's love walks with us, comforts us, purifies us, forgives us, disciplines us. Many waters cannot quench God's love for us. It just keeps going and going and going. I think it's hard not to, as I've been reading through this this song over and over and over again and thinking about it, it's hard not to see God's love for us in the love shared between the husband and a wife. And that's what marriage is supposed to be. That's what actually uh, membership is meant to be. John 13, a new commandment I give to you love one another as I have loved you, so that everyone will know that you are my disciples. Isn't that interesting? God says, I love you. Now love each other. And when you love each other, they're going to know that you are my disciples. There's something about the way in which we love one another as members of this church. As husbands, wives, as friends, there's something of the way we love each other that then declares God's love for us. The story ends on an interesting note because it's pointing past the horizon of this relationship to a greater love story. And that's what Robert did When uh, Robert McQuilkin stepped down, he wrote this letter to to the board explaining why he was leaving to take care of his wife. I'll only read part of it. It's worth reading all of it. But he, he writes, "'Recently it has become apparent that Muriel is content "'most of the time she is with me "'and almost none of the time that I am away from her. "'It is not just discontent. "'She is filled with fear, even terror, "'that she has lost me "'and always goes in search for me when I leave home.' So it is clear to me that she needs me now full time. The decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and health till death do us part. So as I told the students and the faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it. But so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I care for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be a grim and stoic act. But there's more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual frustration. I don't have to care for her. I get to. It is a high honor to care for such a wonderful person. Tina Turner writes this song. What's love got to do with it? Wanting to divorce sex from marriage. But you read stories like this. I don't care if you're a Christian, an atheist. This is what you want. That kind of love. That kind of fidelity. That kind of commitment. That kind of devotion. And when you read stories like that, you can't help but touch the divine. Because that's how God loves us. Robert loved his wife a little bit like God loved us, loves us. And in so doing, that's what we're called to do. As a church, in our neighborhoods, in our relationships, in our families, and our marriages, we're called to love each other in fidelity, in faithfulness, with commitment, in love, with passion and to do all of it in order to create a greater picture, to point beyond the horizon of our relationships, to point to that great story of Christ's love for the church. That's how the song of the song ends. That's why it's the greatest song dedicated to the greatness of love, because ultimately it's not about the love between a man and a woman. Ultimately, the song of songs is about God's love for us, which is the greatest love